0: plushcare.com slash weight loss
1: Hi everyone I'm John Verhoven, and I was a cop back in Sydney in the 80s and I'm Paul Verhoeven John's son I'm an author and I wrote two books about dad's time as a cop The first five seasons of Loose Units spanned my time in general duties forensics my time as a firefighter, and even my stint running a funeral home.
0: But this season we're visiting the locations of Australia's most notorious, baffling, horrific crimes and looking at what happened there.
1: From Snowtown to the family, from the Morehouse murders to haunted highways, this season of Loose Units is your go-to guide to the worst crimes in Australian true crime history.
0: Welcome to Loose Units, The Shadow Files. Hello, and welcome to Loose Units, The Shadow Files. This week, we are finishing our look at the backpacker murders, as carried out back in the 90s by Ivan Milat. Now, Dad, we haven't dealt with the, not the most important part of this case, but certainly the, you know, nail in the coffin of this case, and that is how Ivan Milat was actually caught. Now, I didn't know this, but can I read to you an excerpt from a pretty old article from the Sydney Morning Herald? Mm, Yes, go. Go for it. (laughs) I've never heard anyone say it that way before. Nor have I. No. (laughs) Like an alien who's just landed and is trying to blend in. Okay. So, you have mentioned in passing over the past three episodes of our look at the backpack murders, the manhunt that was happening. Big task force assembled, countless police, lots of money, lots of time, right? Mm-hmm. Now, whenever something like this happens, sometimes they will open up a bit of a hotline where you can call with tips. And I'm assuming that when that happens, lots of stuff that comes in is pretty useless, right? Mm. Yep. So the police hotline, and I'm reading from the article here. The police hotline received a call from a woman we will call Mary who lived in southwest Sydney. Mary said that in 1977, as 18-year-olds, she and her then-friend Therese had been hitchhiking from Liverpool to their home in Canberra, When they accepted a lift from a man in his early 30s with black straggly hair. Just south of Mittagong, where he had stopped to buy petrol, he turned right off the Hume Highway, telling them it was a shortcut to Canberra. A few minutes later, he turned onto a dirt track and stopped the car. I forgot to go to the toilet back at the garage, he said. He opened the boot and bonnet, then grabbed Mary by her arms and said, okay, girls, who's first? Mary said she punched the man and that she and Therese ran into the bush. They found a spot to hide and lay in the bushes for several hours, before the man gave up looking for them and left. Mary and Therese walked back along the road until they found a farmhouse. After hearing their story, the occupants offered to drive Mary and Therese to Bowral Police Station. They didn't report the matter, but accepted a lift back to the highway and hitchhiked onto Canberra. Now, on the same day that Mary called this hotline, Therese, who lived in Western Sydney, independently rang the hotline. Both women told the same story, which they later confirmed in statements... During March 1994, Mary and Therese were separately shown a series of pictures by police that included Ivan Milat and his brother Richard. While Mary did not select anyone from these photos, Therese pointed to photograph four of Ivan and said, his eyebrows are similar and shape of face is similar. Now, about a week after that call, Joanne Berry from Canberra calls in and tells a story where she actually was driving uh, along the Hume Highway back in January 1990, And she sees a four-wheel drive on the side of the road, and there's a man running towards her, chased by another man. And so the man who's running stops and shouts, help me, he's got a gun. So then this woman, Joanne Berry, takes the man to Barrow Police Station, where he reports the incident. And that man was Paul Onions. Mm, Unbelievable. Yeah, so Joanne Berry makes this report a week after that first call, and then about a week after that, Paul Onions calls from England. Because he's heard about the hotline, right? Mm. And he he describes Ivan Malat Now, at that point, everything starts to sort of lock into place. Dad, does this sound like a typical manhunt slash investigation to you? Because it seems to me there's a lot... I mean, this is pretty damning evidence, right?
1: The police had more than a million tip-offs. Incredible. More than a million. They followed up more than 10,000. And that's why with policing, and this is a shout-out to all police Mm -hmm. listening to this podcast, and I'm going to state the bleeding obvious, never assume when someone comes into a police station the police doing general duties are the ones that work. They're the front-line police. They're out there on patrol, but then when they're not on patrol... They can be rostered to work assisting the station sergeant. The number of inquiries that come in off the street are extraordinary. Mm -hmm. And case in point, I was working at a police station once, and a guy came into the station, and he confessed to a murder that he'd committed 30 years prior now he chose a police station randomly he chose a random time of the day to walk in he felt that that was the time to unburden himself with the trauma and my point is that if you're a frontline police officer working in general duties at the counter so when you walk into a police station any police station in the world, that first encounter is often a fairly junior constable. You must listen and take notes and use your instinct because that was a failure when Onions reported this incident at Barrow Police Station. Yeah. A, a really, really serious crime and it was not investigated. Mm-hmm. I just can't for the life of me. It's possible there are so many scenarios having been a police officer that it could have been change of shift. You could have been hanging hanging on to go to the toilet. You could, you could have had a call from your wife. You could have had a, an emergency call. You could have had, You could have just been about to do the report and you had to head off to a fatal car accident. There are so many scenarios, but it was lost in time. Yeah. And, uh,
0: How many lives would have been saved if that uh, report had been taken well, seriously?
1: <clears throat> well, seven that we know of. However, <sighs> mm-hmm. um, we... Do you know, Paul, there are still seven um, murders that they believe Malat was directly involved with? Unsolved.
0: Apar- unsolved, apart from the ones that he was convicted of.
1: Correct. <sighs>
0: yeah. I mean... So- I'm sitting here looking through one of the, I think, the investigative lead on this task force, talking with the papers, kind of running them through first person the investigative process, right? Mm-hmm. And we're talking about the hotline calls coming in in January. So, about February 20, uh, this the head of the task force asks a detective to look into the criminal histories of the Malat family, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. With a specific focus on Ivan, obviously. And then so the detective comes in and tells them that, and I quote, the Malat family, including Ivan, had little or no criminal history. But then he goes in to talk about the fact that several sources, including other cops who lived near the family in Guildford, mm. said that Ivan and some of his brothers had criminal records for armed holdups and other offenses going back to the 70s. But the court file that was actually you know used in court revealed that April 10th, 1971, Ivan picks up two 18-year-old female hitchhikers and he commits a fairly horrible sexual assault. Mm. Uh, they escape. And then he's arrested, but Ivan beats that charge. Um, <clears throat> well, we discussed how he beat
1: the beat the charge.
0: By accusing the women of being lesbians, right? Well,
1: by his, his, his defense attorney. Yes. And that defense attorney later in life... John Marsden. Re- John yeah. Marsden. Yep. He, yep. he later in life uh, was quoted as saying that he deeply regretted that incident mm. and he regretted defending Malat which speaks volumes uh, yeah. but they were, they were a tight family and the 14 children the father would keep them up sometimes till two in the morning working in the garden like like slaves and you know that 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 terrible case uh, where his mo modus operandi with the two women, committed in the early 70s Mm -hmm. um it it it, it again was just lost in time and when onions saw the the press because you may recall that they interrupted a major international cricket event Mm -hmm. to actually talk about this and the the government offered half a million dollars reward yeah now that was the highest reward ever offered in Australian criminal history, but also, interestingly, and they sometimes do this, and this is very interesting, it's a very interesting fact to note, is that sometimes they offer immunity to the person who can um, give them the name of the offender, but who was not directly involved. So it could actually be, Paul, sort of someone that witnessed the entire thing. Right. But not actually committed the actual murders. So an accomplice potentially. An right? accomplice. Yeah. So sometimes they they grant that that's how desperate they were. To catch the big fish. Yeah. To catch the I big understand. fish. So when Onions was um when he contacted the police here, the police they were they were just they they, they couldn't believe it. And it's very interesting, um Onions was secretly flown to Australia on the second of May, yep. he takes police to the precise spot near the Belangalo turnoff where this man attempted to rob and abduct him at gunpoint. Now at this point out in that location, Onions is shown thirteen photographs, okay? Mm hmm And these are thirteen photographs of individual men one of the men in the photo it's actually a video they're showing him
0: yeah
1: is Ivan Malat and he okay. he identifies him and he's first the first thing he says to the police when he identifies this this creepy guy is he said i remembered the mustache and then they start sort of talking about this onion's guy and then they Onions also says that he was the the offender was driving a white four wheel drive, and this is really creepy and it's kind of a bit weird. And I'm just one cannot help but draw similarities to some of the more infamous American, uh, you know, mass murders because he, he calls himself Bill, and he had this massive moustache. Yeah. And but onions had also gleaned in the conversation that he was of Yugoslav background, divorced. And worked on the roads. I mean, it's 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 obviously him. Yeah. And then the police, of course, they have to prove that it's him. So, so um, they... On the 21st of May that year, three detectives, they had this incredible task force. Of course, they fly to Queensland. They, mm-hmm. they re-interview Alex Malat, okay? And he's obviously the brother of Ivan, one of the brothers, but they're also incredibly, um, they're a tight family. But then all of a sudden, Alex's wife, Joan, she hands the police a backpack. And she said to the police that Ivan had given it to them, saying that it belonged to a friend who needed well, to go back to...
0: That's the re-gifting that you talked about the other episode. Yeah. So it was, oh, that's fascinating that that came back. To bite him. Oh,
1: okay, keep going. And keep then going. The, the the backpack. They then test the backpack, and they found out that this backpack that was up in Queensland mm-hmm. belonged to Simone Schmidl. And
0: he's fucked at this point, right? I mean, they've got they've had his house under surveillance since February that year. Hmm. When do they actually break in and search through the house? That surely happens, right? At that point, you've got you've got a physical artifact from a murder victim you've got testimony from someone who's flown across when do they actually i mean do they okay so they've got the backpack and they've got a witness who's flown across onions and they had the house under surveillance since february but i believe in march they finally do the search and ivan's got a girlfriend at this Mm -hmm. point which i find lightly horrifying her name's uh hughes and so she answers the door I think it's six forty-eight in the morning when the search happens. The police start rifling through, and I don't remember what the lawyer's role in this is, but I'm pretty sure his lawyer's kind of scrambling. So they head into his bedroom. They find a postcard that began "Hi Bill," um, so that that links to the Bill thing, right? Mm-hmm. So they find a postcard with "Hi Bill," which is the alias he uses. Ivan denies ever using the name Bill. Um, and then they start going through the room and they find a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, they find bullets in the wardrobe. They find uh, 38 22 caliber bullets in the wardrobe. Mm-hmm. Um, now, here's what else they find. They also find in his spare bedroom a camouflage knife. Uh, and as you recall, that's probably going to end up matching a lot of those wounds. Mm-hmm. They find four boxes of LA twenty-two caliber cartridges, uh, which is the same batch number as those found near um, Gabor's body in mm-hmm. the woods. Mm-hmm. They find a broken barrel band from a Ruger rifle. They found an instruction manual for that gun. They found all kinds of other gun parts 50 Winchester cartridges, including cartridges that match the Clark and Bauer crime scenes. Mm-hmm. They find a range of ammunition for 22, 32, 38, and 45 caliber guns. And they find a water bottle and pouch very similar to the ones belonging to Simone Schmidl. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Now, Ivan's sister, Shirley, is also staying there. In that room, they find a green sleeping bag, which looks like that, that belonged to Everest. And they find another sleeping bag, which looks like the one used by Schmidl. At this mm. point, it's just, you know, they're kind of gauging it visually. Mm. They keep finding stuff. Apparently, they found suspicious items in every single room of the house.
1: Mm. And also hidden in wall cavities. They found yeah. silences and mm-hmm. it's incredible. Paul, one of the most disturbing things about this that I find really upsetting, uh-huh. and I'd really like to sort of delve a bit deeper uh and that is that in the garage they found a pillowcase have you heard this story no and inside the pillowcase were five sash cords okay one of the sash cords had blood stains on it and the dna tests showed that the blood belonged to a child born to ian and jacqueline clark do we know anything about the clarks i don't no, do we? What it. the fuck's that? <clears throat> and they also found a tent belonging to Simone. Yep. Um, but this thing about the blood, and it's, it's, it's the whole thing's really, really just kind of really disturbing, but everything was falling into place really well. Um, you know, they found sleeping bags in the sister's house that belonged to Deborah Everest and Simone Schmidtle. And here is something, again, that is really disturbing and weird. You know how a lot of the victims were backpackers who traveled around the world, Paul? Yes. What is something when you travel that you inadvertently collect from all over the world?
0: Uh, baggage tags, um, stamps on passports, coins, um,
1: coins. Uh. And that's why they've got this thing on when you fly Qantas. You know, they Hmm. ask, can you donate your your coins as you're getting off? But all these people had Mm -hmm. coins from wherever they had been. So the police could figure out exactly what countries they'd been in as well as just by looking at the coins. And guess what? All the coins from all the victims, Malat kept.
0: LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
1: He had all these coins. Right. Okay. It's, just, it's all adding up into a really, really tight tight case.
0: The chief investigator and, actually called it an Aladdin's cave of evidence. Mm,
1: mm.
0: And that, that's the kind of thing, if you've been investigating behind the scenes for however long and mm. you barge in hoping that you find something that links the, your suspect to the crimes, incredible. Yeah. and you find every single room full
1: of mementos, I mean he was like a bow bird. It's horrifying. Oh, incredible. But, but, but Paul, they found uh, a photograph of his girlfriend, current yes, girlfriend, in, in the wearing, shirt, a, right? wearing a shirt that belonged to one of the <sighs> victims. No, it's, imagine I mean, oh, fuck.
0: it's that level of sort of just complete impunity. I mean, there's no because typically speaking in a true crime story, when they find the suspect, that's when the dissembling starts, that's when the annoying courtroom stuff starts. Hmm. But when Malat ends up in court on the 23rd of May, he doesn't enter a plea at all, right? No. And so then on the 31st of May, he's charged with these seven backpacker murders. He sacks his lawyer, Marsden, the one mm. we've been talking about, right? Mm. Yeah, And then he tries to get legal aid to pay for his defense. Mm. His brothers, Richard and Walter, are also busted, I think, primarily for owning a shitload of weapons, mm. right? Mm. So what happens then? How does
1: this trial actually go? The trial went for about four months. And <clears throat> Malat, he, he appealed... Um, so quite often if you've committed many, many offenses, what they do is, let's say you get one life sentence, but there are, you're going to get, then that you're going to get two life sentences, or in his case, he received one life sentence for every victim. So he was given seven life sentences plus additional time, six years for the, um, for the armed robbery. On onions because mm-hmm. he was held at gunpoint very interestingly now you you, you often hear that uh, the sentence will be served concurrently okay now what that means is that they simply stack the life sentences one on top of the other yeah but it means that there's no such thing generally as a life sentence it's very rare for a judge to say you will stay in jail for the term of your natural life. In other words, you will die in jail. That was not specifically said by the judge, but what he did which is very interesting is that he said that the ser- uh, you know the life sentences will be served consecutively, not concurrently which means you will do one life sentence and at the expiration of that life sentence, your second life sentence will start. Now, I know what I'm saying is super weird and it can really fuck with your brain. It's like thinking about the concept of eternity. You will die, then you will start your second. Once you've died again, which we know, of course, is impossible, you will start your third. It's a big fuck you to my lat. It's beautiful and poetic. I mean, Meaning, what I would like
0: to do is find out the requisite amount of miserableness and, um, look, you know, drudgery and horror of serving a life sentence. And then, depending on how many life sentences he has, find some way to multiply the unpleasantness of each life sentence on top of each other, right? Or, like decapage.
1: Or, yeah, or imagine cryogenics, where you oh. you bring him back to life. Right, sure. And it all starts again. Yeah. But, but when he was in jail, the first jail that he was transported to, which, mm. you know... He was assaulted, very very badly, and he shared wasn't, some.
0: Wasn't that his on his first day? That was Maitland Jail, right? Maitland
1: Jail, which yep. it, tough jail. He on his first day, he was um he was beaten. Um, but he did some unusual things in his. Um, he had this thing about the judiciary, and he was very bright because I've gone back and checked his school records, and he was he was a smart. guy guy he was he was mathematically inclined he was artistic we know that he didn't he didn't drink he didn't smoke as his mother quite famously said uh ivan was an altar boy so you know make what you will of that but he he had a real problem with the judiciary and when he was in custody he actually got a plastic knife and he cut his little finger off the intention was to mail it to the court to say, you know, things are not so good here. One of the very interesting appeals that he made was based on that he felt, and he used legal precedent. There's a very famous case where it was where you believe that your your defence counsel yeah. did not act in your best behalf. Okay, but then and it went to the to the full bench um, of the Court of Criminal Appeal in New South Wales. Three eminent judges. And they determined, because they decide whether or not you can appeal, and they said they quashed his request for appeal because they said that the defense that you received did not in any way have a detrimental effect on your sentencing. Yeah. Um, you know, and some people do represent themselves. But, uh, you know, this case went on for four months, numerous witnesses, of course, and And the police really wanted to, to, you know, to tie this up. Um, But he was eventually transferred to Supermax in Goulburn. Yep. And- Oh, hang on. I heard about this.
0: So, there's a former Sydney councillor and convicted drug dealer Mm. called George Savas. Correct. Correct. And he and Malat try and do a prison escape on the 16th of May, 1997, mm. which is about a year after he had the shit kicked out of him over at Maitland Jail, right? Mm. And then the next day, what happened to uh,
1: to Savas the next day? Savas, um, he took his own life. Yeah. Um, interesting. Um, you know, Malat, he... He made certain admissions, and during the court case, there were some criminals that were, um, you know, that gave testimony. Mm-hmm. And one of the criminals that Malat shared a cell with, very early on in the in in the case, had said that Malat had described one day how he had used a knife to sever the spine of a victim. So he was making admissions. One of the most disturbing things about this particular sort of series we've been doing on Ivan Milat is that and bearing in mind there's a theory in life that goes like this if you're about to die there's a very good chance that you're going to tell the truth Um, and it's called a you know, like a deathbed confession, a dying declaration. They don't have to be spoken about under oath Mm -hmm. because the consensus is that if you're about to die, you know you're going to die, you're going to say some pretty amazing things. And there's that very famous case in Sydney where the New South Wales police officer was shot uh, at his kitchen window in Chatswood one night and he was about to die, he made a dying declaration and it implicated Roger Rogerson and guess what? He didn't die. Isn't that amazing? You've got this statement made under the belief or in the belief that you're about to die. Mm-hmm. The police on three separate occasions went to Malat because in his last stages of life he was he was dying uh, of, of cancer and... The police thought, wouldn't it be wonderful if we can go in? And on three occasions, they went to Malat and literally begged him, are there any more victims? Because, you know... Closure. Closure. And and help yeah. help other families. Yeah. Of other, other... There are so many people that this man's life touched that we... I mean, Paul, we've been doing this podcast for... For some weeks, we have had people reach out to us that have told us things about their family members that have had direct encounters with Malat. Do
0: you, you want to tell us any now that you well, haven't told yet?
1: I had uh, there was the one about the two girls that were um, in Barrow. They were in their late teens. They mm-hmm. just come back from ballet. They got picked up by Ivan Malat, and this is a long, long time ago. Well before, which we say well before, we can't <clears throat> we can't say well before he started killing people because we don't know we can say well before he was arrested but he was on the road there are cases I mean if you're working on the road at, sort of on a road gang you've got these opportunities just to you know he's, um, there, are, there are cases of women that have never been found up near Newcastle I, if I was a, I'm not even a betting man. I just think, on the evidence we all have, there have to be other victims, because the gap between when he got those two girls and raped one of them, and then this string of murders, I don't believe that there can be such a long period of time with nothing happening.
0: I would agree with that. But uh, he has you to- have. I was going to say, do you have? So, did you have a specific story that you hadn't told from a listener about? I think you were saving one for. Mm-hmm. Well, I've got to be very or...
1: careful when I tell the story. Okay. Um, and I mean, really careful. I do have permission to tell the story, but I, I'm just going to sort of not talk specifically. But it's a little bit difficult not to be kind of specific. But I'll just say this: Yep. we have a a, a die-hard like a. We're talking a a listener that that knows a lot about this particular case and um Mm -hmm. let me just say that all of the places that are mentioned in anything to do with malat so um the backpacker lodges in the cross ivan malat's home particularly the forest this particular person has really taken the story on board very seriously has sent me photographs of you know, the locations. But this particular person also, I'm just going to sort of... I'm going to pull back a little bit, but I'm, I am going to say this, listeners. He, Are they going to be okay with you telling this no, story? No, he's, he's given me permission. Okay. He good. said, it's fine, but I need to be very cagey with what I'm saying. Of course. So let me just say that he, he is a helicopter pilot. Okay. Okay? So I'm not going to say with whom or with what service he is a helicopter pilot. But I will say that he's done a lot of night flying and some of that night flying which is really full-on because I was in the air wing so I have an appreciation but if you can imagine night flying but sort of super advanced night flying and he did at, at least 15 flights over Belangelo and a lot of them were night flights. And so just just to confirm Paul and listeners I do have permission... To say what I'm about to say, okay, and it's kind of cool, but that's you'll understand why I can't mention uh, any more details. But he and possibly a few other people did fly once over Supermax Jail in Goulburn in the helicopter, and they were buzzing it and they were shouting out obscenities at Malat How do you think? How do you feel about that? It's pretty amazing.
0: So. Basically flying over the Supermax that Malat was in. Correct. um Heckling
1: him with justifiably him. hateful shit. Correct. Okay. So I think it's kind of a cool story. Sorry, that's all I can say in terms of- No, that's of-
0: okay. I Look, you've told me the uh, more detailed
1: version in private, in okay. confidence. Yeah. And it is slightly- <clears throat> it's, it's phenomenal. It's a wonderful story. I'd like to meet this person and, you know, just go, fuck, wow. Yeah. It's the sort of thing that, you know, I think a lot of people would kind of like to do. But yeah. we can't well, talk about what he what he does for a living because it, mm-hmm. it's a bit awkward for the, you know, the employee-employer relationship, let's say. Of that. course, of course. Well. But, Paul, before we go, I think we need to say this. Paul, uh, Malat, he, he wrote a note, a letter to his mother. Did you know that? No. Mm, just before he died. Okay. And the brother comes into the jail yep. and he gets the letter and to 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 our knowledge uh, that that letter had to be presented to the mother who outlived Ivan Milat she may even be still alive and there no one knows the contents of the letter. But wow. What a letter
0: because well, he insisted that he was innocent publicly for a long time. Hmm. But given his behavior and the evidence, it's very clear he wasn't. He died age 74 on the 27th of October 2019 from esophagus and stomach cancer at 4.07am 4, 4 in the morning in Long Bay Correctional Center. And yeah, what a piece of shit. What a terrible, terrible person.
1: This and is he, a... Yeah, He, he and, and interestingly, he wanted the state to pay for his funeral. Yeah to which the state said no. So, I don't quite know what happened. I don't know where he's buried. It might be one of those cases. Oh, no, no,
0: no. Sorry, they cremated him. Oh, Um, okay. And uh, it was paid from his prison account, so it didn't Hmm. actually cost anything. No, no. Well.
1: It's nice to put this one to bed, Paul.
0: Fucking A. What a depressing, intense story about a monster. An actual monster. I mean, one of the actual... Cinema and TV are full of um, a multitude of fictional monsters. I find the real ones much scarier, frankly. Mm -hmm. And one day there's a good chance you and I will actually visit Belangolo and try and just figure out what it's like there. Because, you know, you you can't head through that place and not instantly think of the things that were done there. I really like, I forget which parent, but last episode you talked about one of the parents of one of the girls who was killed heading there and kind of doing a ceremony to cleanse the place and mm. just saying that we're putting this to rest and trying to kind of free the place of the associations of these terrible crimes. Mm. But it's a, it's, a, it's a long saga and it's taken us four episodes to get through and it's taken us much longer than four weeks because we've been doing lots of other things in between, but that mm. is it. That is the end of our look at the backpacker murders on Loose Units, The Shadow Files. Now, I'm heading across to Mumbai, India, in about 24 hours, 36 hours-ish for a press trip. But Dad and I are just about to sit down and record a Loose Ends for you to make sure that you've got something for you at the tail end of the week. So don't stress, we've got you covered with a little bit of relief from this trauma. But thank you so much, everyone, for listening to another episode of Loose Units, The Shadow Files. We are having an absolute blast hanging out with you every week. So from Dad and myself, thank you very much for listening. And uh, you keep listening, we'll keep recording. Have a great week, everyone, and we'll see you soon for more Loose Units. Bye-bye.
1: Cheerio. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
0: A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance.